Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. We're looking outside right now. We just got so much snow. Oh my gosh. Like, dumped. Metric fuck tons of snow. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the exact me meteorology report. Yeah, yeah. Megan is officially a meteorologist now. It's pretty incredible. But we're living the ultimate Colorado lifestyle because some of our athletes dropped off their car before they drove out of town to get away. So we currently have a Subaru covered in a massive amount of like an igloo of snow outside, which I feel like they should have in front of every Colorado house all the time. Well, it's funny because Addie typically loves snow, but I would say she was not so enthused about the no. snowstorm. So she would go out and she would come back inside and her fur would just be covered in these snowballs and in interesting formations. And I called it her snowball implants as a uh, <laughs> very serious Instagram influencer over there. She's going to have hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers if we can just like get her posed in just the right coy look, like looking over her shoulder at us with her butt, butt implants showing. Well, it's funny because she has this fitness tracker and we call it her like her Fitbit for dogs. Yeah, yeah. It's called Fee. And this was the first time. So she's gotten 10,000 steps a day every day for three months. And this weekend during the snow was the first time she didn't get 10,000 steps. And I felt like they needed like some sort of, I feel like on Strava, there needs to be a snow adjusted pace. I've had athletes <laughs> move to Colorado and be like, why is running in the snow so hard? And I'm like, it's because you need to put out like tons yeah, of watts. Well, running on the snow, this storm was impossible. Someone someone said online, oh, you should run in the snow. It'll make you tougher. It's like, actually, I think that would probably be virtually impossible. Yeah, you would just be like post-holing the entire time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a glorified hike. I, I don't understand that point. Um, but I think there should be like this like snow adjusted pace on Strava. Yeah. Actually, I was thinking about it more and I was like, there should be an adjusted pace for everything. Like yeah. just took an exam adjusted pace, <laughs> just traveled adjusted pace. Time of the month where I'm convinced the world is ending adjusted pace. I really need that. I the feel first like two to three days before my period. The menstrual cycle apocalypse adjusted pace is definitely something that needs to happen on Strava. Like Fleabag called it the uh, the monthly crisis of confidence, uh, the great show Fleabag. And I always think of that when we, uh, we briefly wonder if like you're either pregnant, have stomach issues, or are just like maybe in that time of the month. Well, it's funny because I tell you, I'm like, I should never judge anything about my life during those two to three days before I get my yeah. period. But inevitably I do. I'm like, oh, I hate myself. I suck. Life is not good. And I know it's the two to three days before my period. But for whatever reason, I can't remember the, the prior <laughs> self two days ago who was but like, I'm like, not going to judge. I feel like some of the best life swerves might come from that moment because like you can't, you rethink everything. It's like, is anything right in the world? And then the conclusion is always no. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. But yeah, and as a result, we've ended up in some very cool places in life. But it was funny because I think as Adios out there crawling through the snow, it made me think. So yesterday I was doing research for you. So I have access to all different like medical journals, online yeah. journals. And so I can pull full, full articles for you as you're doing research. And I came across this fascinating article in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research called Effects of Time of Day on Race Splits, Kinematics, and Blood Lactate during a 50 meter front crawl performance. And I'm like, that's what Addy was doing. Yeah. Addy was doing the front crawl. So Megan told me about this. And we both thought nothing of it. We're like, wow, they do crawling in uh, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research nowadays. Actually, That's my, very... first, my first thought was we've been doing some OCR, some heavy OCR watching since we're coaching a number of OCR athletes. I want to be fully prepared to coach them. And there's this front crawl that they do on yeah. barbed wire. And I'm like, wow, OCR <laughs> is making medical journals, scientific journals. This is amazing. Yeah, I actually texted our athlete, Nicole Miracle, that the woman that finished in second place behind her is the best crawler I've ever seen. She was elite. Yeah, yeah. And so we're like, oh, this totally makes sense. And then I went back to the, the study table of con or the the journal table of contents because I was like that's really interesting I want to read more about crawling sure enough the front crawl as many listeners probably know 
actually refers to swimming. I thought that was hilarious. So we're we're big on sports. The one sport I know nothing yeah. about is swimming. I'll be perfectly I'm honest. not a good like, swim coach. I'm a terrible swimmer. I'm a terrible swim coach and a terrible swimmer. I remember at age five, I still hadn't learned how to swim. I just had I had very little exposure to pools or water yeah. as a kid. And so my parents' response at age five was, oh, let's toss Megan into the pool <laughs> and see what happens. And the most logical thing happened, I sunk. Yeah. And my parents had to come rescue me in the pool. And that was my that was my first foray into swimming. It did not go well. You are truly a sinker. In the water. I was, yeah, very much a sinker. I was the shallow end kid at all the birthday parties until age eight when I was finally like, oh, heck with this. I got to teach myself. So I learned how to swim. But yeah, swimming is not easy. I still don't have a great relationship with the water, to be perfectly honest. Like, I'm not a big fan of basic, even like a bath that is deep. It's just not, I'm not good at it. It's a little scary to me. Actually, one of my, so I did a triathlon after field hockey in college in Schuylkill River in Pennsylvania. Why they were doing a triathlon in the Schuylkill River in Pennsylvania is mind boggling to me. <laughs> it's a highly polluted yeah, river. You're... Probably not great. I think my, like my cells are probably slightly mutated as instead a result of, of this triathlon. Not worth it. Instead of buoys to swim around, you just had syringes <laughs> that you were navigating. Just, just floating in bacteria. Um, yeah, that, that, that was my wetsuit. But actually, treading water on the starting line yeah. was one of the worst experiences. I was like, I may die out here. I yeah, yeah. tread water for like five minutes surrounded by a hundred other people. And I it, talk about start line anxiety. Actually, it was great because like sometimes I have start line anxiety yeah. and after treading water, I'm like, oh my gosh, start lines are running are so easy. All I have to do is stand here. I don't have yeah. to tread water for five minutes. You have VO2 max, just like you and the syringes and a bunch of your Philly friends all eating cheesesteaks and like dying in the water practically. It was terrible. Also, I hear panic attacks happen a lot in triathlons. Oh, gosh, actually, it was awful. Also, everyone was in a wetsuit and I was in this like janky bathing suit with this like goggles that like practically could have had like a tape strip on the top. Yeah, it was a bad experience, oh my bad, gosh. bad experience. We need a video of that so badly. Um, yeah, and you know, we've had a lot of fun this week, but I think my favorite memory of this entire week um, was, so I'm, I'm down working at like 5 a.m. last week and Megan just comes down the stairs really drooly eyed. And first thing I always like to ask her, you know, love you all this other good stuff. And then, oh, Megan, did you have any dreams? And Megan's like, I actually did. I just woke up in one. I don't remember my dreams very often, but this dream stayed like stuck in my mind permanently. So uh, yeah, this was a dream where all of a sudden in the middle of the night, like I saw an 85 year old self of yeah. me. And she, from the future. From the did future. It was crazy. And I was having a conversation with her and I was looking at her and I was like, wow, those wrinkles, those are some strong <laughs> wrinkles. Those, those look like a French bulldog right there. <laughs> and I was like, what do you, what I asked her at 85 year old. What's lady, the wisdom? What's the wisdom? And she turned to me and she goes, skincare <laughs> and it was it was like first of all it was funny it was so funny in my dream but it was even more funny in real life because i told that to you and you just started laughing yeah. so hard i feel like that's exactly the thing that like 85 year old you would, you would say is a joke i feel like you remember uh, was it kurt vonnegut or something that said like use sunscreen whoever whatever that that apocryphal story was i feel like that should be our version of that is skincare well it's so funny because my brain was like oh my gosh why am i having this dream i like always think about like dream psychology like yeah. what, th what this means about my inner self and I actually think the whole French bulldog dialogue in there yeah. was because we were supposed to be flying coming up and French bulldogs aren't allowed to fly. And this was like how I got to this wrinkled state in this dream. Very <laughs> fascinating psychology. But I think love is like, you are always so interested in my dreams coming downstairs. And you know how a best friend starts telling you about dreams yeah. and you're like, this is a horrible conversation. <laughs> Please don't tell me anything more about your dreams. I think love is being truly well, interested in someone's dreams. I don't know. I think your dreams are just the freaking best. Um, yeah, and kind of relevant because Megan yesterday took a call outside um, and she comes back in. And instead of looking like a normal human, all of a sudden she looks like an Oompa Loompa and her, her face is just straight orange. And I guess that's because the sun reflected off the snow. Yeah, it was, so, I could barely take the call. I couldn't even see the screen. It was so bright out there, but I didn't even think about the fact that it was frying my yeah. skin cells. So I like that 85 year old, you gave a message to you last week. And this week you're like, 
Oh shit, I totally forgot about that. Time so, to be a French bulldog. Um, we also did a fun exercise that everyone can do with your partner or your friend or anyone really um, that Megan introduced me to last week. I loved it. Yeah, so it was super cool. So I discovered this from Lifebox. So I did a podcast with Laura Pence and she sent me this thing called Lifebox. It's actually L-I-G-H-F as in fuck box, not, <laughs> not Lightbox. Um, which actually, that's super funny because it makes me think about the fact one of the funniest conversations I've ever had was with an airline person and I was using like the phonetic yeah. alphabet, like Alpha Bravo Charlie. And instead I just, started filling in ridiculous words and it was a 20 minute conversation like we just could not stop laughing about this i was using like awesome sauce but on kadong cheese was douche canoe yeah I, I feel like that should would be way easier to actually get the words i always never understand what people are saying when they do that. i know it's it's way more fun than using the traditional uh phonetic alphabet but anyway so the core values are so you start thinking about like the core values of what you think about yourself so like say you were to die like what would you write about yeah. yourself in your funeral like the three things that stand out most about yourself and then the other things are what you look for in your friends and then what you look for in marriage. And it was a super fun exercise to do together. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I, I think we learned a lot about each other. We generally overlapped. Like Megan was adventurous and playful, hustle, enthusiasm, compassion, all things that really define her. And then you were reliably genuine, enthusiastically supportive. Also, I love this one. The first 24 seconds of Jagged Edge where the park at. <laughs> it's a dun 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 I hope that I'm that person that just set someone up for like the, after that song. I think that says a lot about you. Also, the fact that it was two words and you took a eight. <laughs> jagged edge don't play by those rules but i thought was what was really interesting too is so you wrote three things from like what you're looking for in a marriage and then you, you added also four bonus things <laughs> to that so you added perfect megan body perfect megan smile perfect megan laugh and then likes food and for I, I, that was like super funny because a like creative points also thank you for thinking i'm perfect but i was kind of pissed i was like i don't want to be perfect man i am not perfect yeah. i want you to call me on my imperfect shit i will love every little nook and cranny of your french bulldog wrinkles that <laughs> might be coming sooner rather than later after what happened to the sun yesterday. But moral of the story, it was a really fun like yeah. dialogue for us to have. It was something fun to do on a snow day. I thought it was a great exercise. So if you're looking for something to do either by yourself, with a partner, with a friend, it just was kind of a great exercise. Coffee, wine also makes it great too. I think we did it over beer. Yeah. And so we're on episode 40, which is going to be the Coach Dilji Taylor episode. Um, the coach of the BYU Cougars. Um, she is a total freaking boss. We love her deeply, even though we've never met her. She is one of our idols as a human and coach in everything. So coach Dildi Taylor. Yeah, we got to see her in action yesterday. So we watched the NCAA cross-country race yesterday. Also, side note, there was a hill. So yeah. US uh, NCAA cross-country courses are known to be done on flat, groomed cross-country courses. There's like not a hill, not a speck of mud. Everything is perfect. There were actually hills in yesterday's oh cross-country course, and I got very excited. It was so brutal watching the finish line cam you would just watch and people would just be like down for the count down for the count in fact one person just just crossed the finish line uh was so down for the count someone ran out there grabbed them and pulled them off and of course i'm there just David, taking David a video was boomeranging this i'm yeah. like you cannot post that David. that is not okay well she was okay um and it was very funny you still did not post that. also like, not the best advertisement for running as a pursuit that should be it enjoyable. looked awful yeah. Actually, i was about to go out for a workout after the fact that i was like uh i don't know if i want to do this yeah, anymore never before have i liked trail running more than that moment. But anyways, so summary, the BYU women won. They had a smashing performance and Dilji Taylor just powered them to that. So Dilji Taylor came to BYU in 2016. After, so BYU is a powerhouse in women's cross country in the 90s, in the early 2000s. And then they kind of suffered like a tough period of time. Mm -hmm. And Dilji Taylor just totally transformed the program. Um, so they went from not making NCAAs um, to over the last couple of years, finishing 10th, 11th, 2nd, and now 1st. Um, 
truly under her tutelage and just such an amazing coach and, and human being. Yeah. And so she's brilliant with training philosophy. And what we really want to focus on is the type of human she is. Um, so there's an amazing article in Runner's World about this. Megan was reading it in the bathtub last night. So I was reading it in the bathtub last night, getting goosebumps and just thinking about like getting so inspired about coaching. And as I was reading this, I was like, this should be required reading for anyone who wants to get into coaching, anyone who's a leader, anyone who's like, you know, working with athletes. And I scroll down and what do you know? It's written by Cindy Kuzma, who's an athlete <laughs> I coach and just someone I, she's an amazing person. So go check out that Cindy Kuzma article on Runner's World. Getting, incredible. Getting goosebumps. Super impressive when the hot when the bathtub is set at like 130 degrees to fry <laughs> your ovaries. Um, so she was mic'd up at the conference meet um, a, a few weeks ago. And I loved what she said to her athletes right before the start. She said, let the head and heart do its thing. The body will follow. And that's always, always this um, ethos that she provides in her coaching, which is, look, we're going to really focus on the head and the heart. The body will be something we work on. It matters. You have to go all in. But the head and the heart are just as, if not more important. And that's everything. Actually, I saw Cindy Kuzma had an incredible quote on this topic. She said, Taylor learned happy runners tend to perform better and make memories outlasting their career. So she plans regular parties and date nights. And, you know, we wrote the book, The yeah. Happy Runner. I'm like, oh my gosh, that <laughs> needs to be on the back of that book. Like that is basically a summary and takeaway of what we wrote just because it's so important. The fact that like, you know, layering in this element of fun yeah. and happiness and enthusiasm, like it's just so important in overall running performance. Yeah. She's like, be happy, do a little dance to these athletes that are about to go suffer. And the takeaway is just having enthusiasm in what others can do is such a powerful thing. And she un unleashes these people's potential by being a brilliant coach, but also by being a brilliant motivator. Um, and, you know, probably connects to her background. Her parents emigrated from India. She was raised in the Sikh faith. Um, you know, she has this whole history with track in her own personal background. And it just shows she has so much grit. She built a program at a small college in California to national prominence from nothing, just like she did before. And I think right around, alongside that grit is flexibility too. So BYU is known for, BYU is a Mormon school. They have a yeah. very Mormon culture in what they do. And she is not Mormon. And she talks about the fact that like, because she's been this outsider, you know, as an Indian in the running world, that she's able to have this flexibility yeah. in coaching and she's able to weave like God into these conversations and she's able to weave in the Mormon faith in a way that really supports these women. You know, that is yeah. their belief system. Well, I think everything she does focuses on two words, builds up. She builds up with the faith thing. She builds up with athletics. She builds up with emotions and she builds up these programs without knowing exactly where they're going to end up. And they call it a sisterhood. So yeah. there's, this is actually another amazing quote um, from Taylor. We created a sisterhood, a culture of strong women who empower each other. We built this thing on love. What we have here is so different than anywhere else. And, you know, talk about like we've talked about, you know, the themes on here about building around love, building around support. And that is fully what Diljit Taylor has done in this BYU program. I love that. And, you know, maybe the thing that she's known for most are these pre-race cards that she sends to each athlete. Athlete. And they have this big theme. I believe in you. And that is everything. I believe in you. Those words have so much power. Also, I saw a picture of these cards. These are like Hallmark A++ yeah. cards. She must put in like hours. In Which is, cards. you know, she's probably working 80 hour weeks at times. Oh, she must be working more and than the that. Fact and that, she's a mom. And yeah. that she's investing this time in the cards just shows where she's putting her priorities. That she really, when she says, I believe in you, it's not I believe in you in this way that's just a throw out statement. It's I believe in you to my core with my actions and everything I do. And I mean, to me, that's what I want to take away from Coach Taylor is, you know, yeah, I need to worry about training methodology. But what I really want to do is have an athlete get to a start line and know that they have someone that is literally lifting them up. Uh, well, not literally, because that would be a little awkward for running, um, but figuratively lifting them up in everything they do. But I think what, what's cool about this belief is it's also layered in with this foundation of direct communication and honesty. Mm -hmm. And there's quotes from her athletes. Like they, they say, like, when Diljit Taylor believes in us, we know she believes in us because we have that foundation of honesty. We have that foundation of direct communication. And she's very 
very different in how she layers in that communication with athletes. So it's never this like one size fits all belief conversation. It's always layered in with like this hard truth, this hard honesty. Yeah. And that allows athletes that when, they, when she tells them they, she believes in them, they can truly believe that yeah. because it's been, you know, it's been built on this foundation of honesty and trust from day one. Seeing them celebrate yesterday was one of the coolest moments. And I think it's something that like, you know, we can share in these achievements and we can lift others up and it all comes back to belief in building others up. Um, so we're going to kind of get into like, it's kind of a topic, kind of not. And it's a quote from Coach Taylor about health. So Coach Taylor said, we address those conversations head on. It's very important to fuel our bodies with good things so they can do good things for us. With women, it's a little different with the bone structures. We want to make sure they're having periods for bone strength and for having children and things beyond sport. We want periods. If they're not having them, we need to talk about them and increase fat and take our cut training mileage. We have a very healthy culture. I love this quote. The fact that she just addresses this early on, she talks about it openly with her yeah. teams. This is something that like, it's should be the norm in the NCAA, but it hasn't been the norm. And I love that she's like creating this standard. And it gets back to the body image conversation we had last week. It's so hard in these, these settings where, I mean, comparison is not possible to avoid because everyone around you is doing all these different things. And you see what people are doing at dinner tables. Like I remember an athlete told me that trained at a major SEC program back in the nineties, that their coach took the bread off the table and said, champions don't eat bread. And of course that team got fucked across the board long-term. And co meanwhile, Coach Taylor is on the opposite end of the spectrum in the best way. And that's why her teams have had success. You, when they, when their team scale broke, when the, um, back in a couple of years ago, she said, don't replace it. We don't need a scale. Actually, well, I saw a quote and she's like, you know, this is, we are not about a number here. And I think that is just like such an important and healthy thing. But I think the other thing too is, is that like, she starts these conversations early on. And so yeah. she has, she has conversations with, recruits with admits like the minute they walk in the door and i feel like starting that conversation so early on and making it the norm on the team is just important. yeah and if you don't have a coach tail in your life just know that it's okay to think about these things and it's okay to jump off the scale train that's why this is kind of like a topic we want to say if you want to throw out your scale throw out your scale when we, i when did we have a scale last probably 10 almost oh 10 my gosh, years. years and years, like, years, right years ago i mean and for me i remember i was a football player i was 200 pounds um, and I really got obsessed with this idea of, well, runners aren't 200 pounds in my head. Um, whether that's right or wrong, I had got this in my head. I would weigh myself every morning, every afternoon, and every night to try to get down a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more um, to the point that like if I overhydrated before bed and got, came down to a little bit higher weight, it brought up these things of like, oh, I'm never going to be a good runner. And it created this situation where I'm like, man fuck the scale. We don't need scales. I mean, we encourage well, also, everyone to Well, as you see, out. it's also on the scales too. You're seeing, it's, it's kind of like looking at like a pace yeah. randomly. On a yeah. run. Like you're seeing all these variables. You're seeing hydration. You're seeing like random body boxes. You're seeing hormones. You're seeing all these different things. And also like that number just purely does not matter. I remember I had a similar experience actually in field hockey when I was transitioning from being a field hockey player yeah. to a runner at Duke. And I remember going into, so Duke had this like very strange, they had like a, a main workout gym. And then mm -hmm. they had this other side gym that was kind <laughs> of like this sketchy side gym from like the early 1900s yeah. or something. It was the locker room was old. And that was where I would go to weigh myself because mm. I knew that there was like, I knew no one would see me yeah. in that gym doing it. And I knew there was almost this like layer of shame as yeah. I was going to go do it. And I have such these memories of stepping on the scale and having a visceral response. Unfortunately, like after college, totally removed that from my life. And it's just been a much and better And we were able to hold each other accountable to it, which I think has been really important. And as from a training perspective, you must remember running 
and is not a power to weight ratio uh, sport. Like the power and weight are not tied together. Don't even think about it. Like I was thinking if I was a, one of those carnival guessers that tries to guess weight, I don't know if I could even estimate it within 20 pounds in either direction right now because I haven't stepped on it in so long. That also goes for the doctor's office. You can ask not to be weighed or to be turned the other direction and not be told. Um, these metrics do not matter. They just summarize in such a way that can be negative for many brains. So discard the scale if you can. Throw it out of, uh, if you if it ever brings a bad thought to your head in any way, just throw it out the window. You can make it a, a ceremonial thing. Actually, we got a really beautiful comment from an athlete and I love I love this. Um, this is from our from our podcast email. When I was really struggling with disordered eating and body image, I came home late one night after class and my partner had covered every mirror and scale in our house with paper bags and wrote the sweetest and most encouraging notes and drawings all over them. Perhaps one of the most thoughtful, thoughtful things anyone has ever done for me. How beautiful yeah. is that? It's like the Coach Taylor notes, you know, how can, how can we lift others up? And I, that's the question to end this topic is just how can we do that for others first and then how can we do that for ourselves most importantly and i think oftentimes like for me it's so easy to do for other people and it is okay to do that for yourself yeah. in fact it is important that's how you are going to lift other people up is by lifting yourself up first I love it. kind should... of like the oxygen mask and a plane you know they're like yeah. put the oxygen mask on yourself first like yeah do that in this conversation too we should create a some work all play scale that just pops up the number and just says you're awesome. Awesome sauce. But don't get on whatever. What you, your number your different things. Like I think that that would lead to better performances than worrying anything about what that number actually is. We haven't talked about that before. I love this idea. I think it's time to go Shark Tank on this. I know what <laughs> yeah. Shark Tank is going to say. Mark Cuban, you know you're listening. Um, so I guess this is topic two. You want to get into it? Let's do topic two. So this question is on going to altitude from sea level from KR. I live in Florida and was recently accepted into a lottery for a 100-mile ultra at altitude, 10,000 feet of altitude. Although I've read that heat training can help to a certain degree, do you have any specific advice for how a flatlander can train for something like this? I've got about six months to attempt to get some mountain legs and lungs. Thanks so much. Amazing question. And we're going to use this, as always, to broaden out just slightly into altitude and thinking about training more generally. So first, the altitude impacts. Um, there's an article in the Journal of Sport and Health Science in 2015 that gets into this in detail. Um, the big one to remember is just there's a reduced partial pressure of oxygen. Um, as oxygen transport is blunted. Your body uses oxygen as fuel. It's hard to get it get get it moving. And that causes a lot of downstream adaptations. I think the other thing that goes on too, and this is highlighted in the high altitude medicine and biology, that is a very specific journal yeah, yeah, in 2017, um, which talks about the fact that as soon as you go to altitude, you have this response that causes decreased blood plasma volume, as well as decreased stroke volume. So your cardiac output is, is dropping as you get to altitude. And that happens for athletes. For athletes, it happens um, differently based on the individual, but it happens almost immediately as soon as you get to altitude. And that's one of the big things to remember is that individual variability in altitude response is massive. There is no general overarching response. In fact, there are people that respond very well to altitude, and then there are non-responders that don't respond well. So as we're talking about this, remember, it's kind of just a variance based on the person. And also uh, variability within an individual itself. Too. Yeah. So I've seen over some time. athletes over time. I've seen some athletes who have horrible experiences their first time at altitude, and sometimes that goes away over time. And so like, not every altitude experience is the same. Either. And it even matters like how you're raised. There's some fascinating studies that if you're in utero, if you're a, a fetus um, at, at altitude, you retain adaptations and ability to adapt that last really long. So, you know, it goes way beyond um, just like what you've done in training. Actually, we've made jokes about that for ourselves. We're like, well, we should just go to 8,000 feet. When, you know what? I want to get pregnant someday. And we're like, yeah. we should just carry that kid at 8,000 feet. They're going to have altitude acclimations <laughs> out, out at the start. 8,000 feet. We should go to Nepal. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you're coming from sea level, the big thing to remember is how blood volume and hemoglobin interact through heat training. Um, so the, the big message with like coming from sea level relates to plasma volume. 
Um, a 2015 study in the European Journal of Applied Physiology found a 17.8% increase in plasma volume in just a few days with heat training. Um, so why is that relevant? Plasma volume is an increase in the liquid content of your blood. As the liquid content goes up, that's good. One thing, because you go to altitude and that goes down. So you're blunting that response a little bit. The other thing is a recent study in 2020 in experimental phys physiology found that hemoglobin follows. And so you can think of this logically. So as plasma volume increases, your hematocrit or the percentage of red blood cells goes down slightly. The kidneys want to find equilibrium. Hema hematocrit goes back up and with that he overall hemoglobin mass. And hemoglobin is what transports oxygen, so that helps at altitude. So heat training is your friend. I was gonna say, big conclusion, hemoglobin yeah. is, is your, your end goal here, it's awesome. I think the other interesting thing too is just there's some studies out there, and this is like very early, this is like conjecture out there, is, is that the heat shock proteins, so like proteins that you stress when you're when you're going through these, these heat training cycles, may actually interact with the proteins that are involved in like um, going to high altitude environments are involved with hypoxia. And so there could be cross acclimation there. And I think that's fascinating. So Essentially, there's so many different things that yeah. are going on in the body. It's we could do we could cover this in like an hour episode. Actually, we were talking before the episode. I'm like, David, this is this is very <laughs> complicated. Are we sure you want to go into this? You and you're nailed like, yes. it though. I don't, I don't know. Um, so you know, heat is your friend, and, and coming from sea level in summer, you're going to have an amazing opportunity for that. Um, and we've both had experience with experiences with altitude that I think are relevant. I mean, for me, one of my best races ever was the Jupiter Peak steeplechase that got over 10,000 feet coming from sea level. And the reason I think it went really well is that that summer I was training mostly in Washington, DC, um, often commuting home from work with my backpack on. And like, it was a really hot summer. It got to, you know, over a hundred heat index all the time. And I felt more prepared for that race than I've felt since we've lived at altitude. Actually, we call it, we call heat and humidity training, training sometimes poor man's altitude. And I yeah. think like, you know, it truly is, I think a, like, you know, as we talked about, it prepares you know, there's these heat shock proteins, there's, this, there's these blood volume plasma proteins, but it also just makes you tough. It makes you ready to yeah. prepare, prepare, prepare. And that really toughness is everything at altitude. So I actually had an experience where I raced the Leadville heavy half, which gets up to 13,000 feet from sea level. And uh, that was tough. I yeah. do, not, do not recommend that. <laughs> but I think the other thing that's important to remember too, and what I've seen in athletes is, is that sometimes when you go and race at altitude, the body can feel like shit in the first part yeah. of the race. And usually it gets better over time. Um, so like, don't judge, like if you're coming from, if you're coming from sea level and you know, you're racing altitude if you feel bad in the first miles your body may actually adapt over time yeah. i think the other thing too to think about is the fact that not every altitude zone is the same so for me i know i start to get this like cellular level panic <laughs> as soon as i get above twelve thousand feet it's kind of like the crisis of confidence it's like a it's very much like a crisis of confidence over twelve thousand feet but as soon as i get below that number i start feeling better and so like you know if you're doing a race that goes through varying altitude zones if you're feeling bad at twelve thousand feet that may recover you may feel a lot yeah. better as soon as you start descending to ten thousand feet nine thousand feet and altitude's better. kind of hard for everyone. I mean, I think sometimes when people come from sea level, if you didn't tell them they were coming from sea level, they'd be on a better footing because we get in our own heads about it. Um, and, and avoiding that is really key. And so other things to think about when you're training, um, one, the uphills, if you're, if you're there, you can do that on the treadmill through sustained climbing. We're big fans of treadmills. In fact, it's something we incorporate into our own training and a lot of athletes we coach, um, either often it can work as a, as a double where you do some climbing, whether that's hiking or running. Um, and that gets you really used to the, uh, used to the biomechanical stresses of climbing. Also, the other thing too, is thinking about preparing for the downhills. Yes, and that's, that's, that's probably the most important. I was gonna say, that's also something that's a little bit harder too. And so what we've seen is strength work. So the SWAT mountain legs is fantastic for that. Um, even stairs. Yeah. We've had people get creative too with ramps. So yeah. I've seen people go to parking garages and run down the ramps in the parking garages, be as safe as possible as you're doing. Yeah. That sounds a little scary. Um, but like lots of creative ways to think about preparing for downhill. And the cool thing about eccentric contractions, eccentric muscle contractions. So what we're talking about when the muscle lengthens under load on down 
downhills is those adaptations don't need to be constantly reinforced. So if you're thinking trying to get these adaptations once every two to four weeks, if you're in a flatter place, um, you can go do a trip every couple of weeks or a few weeks. You can do an altitude training camp. You could do the stairs thing where I've seen athletes have a lot of success that like running down one or two stairs at a time, just make sure you sign a waiver and don't say that we did that. We told you to do that because uh, there's also a good chance that ends in a face plant. So yeah, we've seen a lot of athletes have success with altitude training camps actually. Yeah. And I think like they're fun. I think they're a great way to build confidence, a great way for the body to even just remember what altitude feels like. I yeah. feel like there's, you know, the body has that, that memory for The it. neuromuscular element of altitude is something that is so underestimated. Um, so people, you might, people listening might've heard of two days or two weeks. Like you get there two days before you get there two weeks before, not in between. I totally disagree based on what I've seen. I think get out there as soon as you can, because that all, it's not just physiology. It's also how your brain is interpreting the effort. So if blood volume does drop right when you get to altitude, um, you can train through that a little bit. So you get to altitude, you don't just rest when you get there, you do some runs, you do some hill, harder hill strides to work on the cardiac out, output while you're there. Um, I would say an athlete, get there three days before you can get there four days before you can any amount helps. Um, just make sure you're treating your body well in that process. I think when you think about treating your body well too, it's really important to think about what's happening when you get to altitude. So I think really making sure that your body is in a good iron position when, so iron yeah. is like this important precursor for forming uh, red blood cells. And we see iron as a big impact for female athletes. And so getting your iron levels measured, getting a CBC, getting a complete blood count to look at your hemoglobin and hematocrit can be a helpful information process yeah. as you're getting to altitude. You can even do it pre and post for some interesting data. Yeah, the healthier you are, the better. Um, and another consideration is that altitude and heat um, might not interact in quite the same way that we discussed. Actually, that's a great point. So sometimes I see athletes who come to altitude training camps yeah. and they may not have work for the first time. They may be on vacation and they're like, let's layer in all the stress while I'm here at altitude training camps. So they have like altitude, they have sauna, they're doing glycogen depletion yeah. training, like they're doing all these different things. And it's just too much for the body to yeah. handle. So, you know, just let altitude be the main stress, treat your body really well outside of that altitude stress. And the big conclusion, whether you're at altitude or not, is that fitness is fitness is fitness. Um, Overemphasizing specific training is not really needed because fitness is the ultimate, uh, it gives you a lot of buffer for error. So um, when you're training, keep focusing on your long-term speed development, keep focusing on your aerobic development. If you do those things, and add something like heat training, you'll be ready for altitude, even if you're coming from a pancake flat, zero feet of elevation place. Uh, you want to get to the next topic? We're going to go a little bit over 30 minutes let's do the Let's do the final topic. Yeah, so this is on training partners. And we've gotten a ton of questions yeah. on this topic. So we actually, in a, a recent episode, we talked about training with each other as like partners and training partners. Yeah. And this one is a little bit broader on friends as well as partners or training partners. So the question is from M. I am eagerly awaiting the podcast episode where you talk about how to run with friends. And then another question from E. However, I can tell that deep down, he feels like he's letting me down. How can I show him that we are still a team and that I really support him while still allowing myself to grow and develop as an athlete? Yeah. So that was a longer question. Um, great one. And we had some others too. This is probably our most asked questions on like how to train with training partners. And I think the big dilemma gets back to something we were talking about with coach Taylor, balancing individual goals versus group dynamics. I mean, at a lot of college teams, you see this problem play out where one, maybe they're not even trying to do this, but like one person gets to the front and maybe is half-stepping someone else. So someone just speeds okay, up. Okay, that just... person is me. I'm a <laughs> chronic half-stepper. Full admission here. Well, no, it's not Half-stepping is not my jam. You don't think you're half-stepping. You think that I'm half-stepping you when you're half-stepping me. That's the thing about half-stepping is it always feels like someone else is half-stepping you. <laughs> I feel like there needs to be an Einsteinian relativity theory on half-stepping. Um, but you can imagine this problem playing out on the college team. Like, so someone half-steps, someone half-steps, and then it just creates this process where everyone ends up kind of running, running kind of fast. Um, and now that can 
play out in group dynamics all the time where someone's like, oh, I feel bad because I'm not, I'm holding this person back. So I'm going to go hard all the time. And someone, your run becomes someone else's run rather than a group run. And it, the key is it needs to be about the group, about lifting up the group. And I think a great way to do that is just having this open conversation yeah. and checking in with other people. So asking like, how is this pace? How is this fruit? How are you feeling? Um, sometimes we've seen even too that partners who are training together is go to couples therapy and yeah. like, you need that larger check-in and you need someone to help structure that process. Yeah. And you. if you're not having couples therapy, you need some version of like a therapeutic uh, venting process for all training partners. Because if you're out there with someone over the course of a training cycle, some days you will both feel great. Some days one person will be shitting their pants. Some days someone will feel terrible about their lives or whatever it is. And you need to have contingencies in place so that all of these things are accommodated on the same day. And I think also to the support process to be able to do your own thing out there when needed. Like, you know, if your partner is out there running and you need to slow down the pace or you need to speed up the pace or like whatever it may be to have that open support to be like, you know, this is not changing the fundamental dynamics yeah. of our relationship because one person has to slow down or this isn't even a reflection of fitness. This is just yeah. a day and someone needing something one in that thing moment. That's been so powerful for me is Megan always encourages me to do my workouts while she, running with her. So she's like, just go ahead and then come back. And like, that felt to me, I was like, are you going to feel bad? And she's like, no, I root for you. Like, I get so excited when you do that. Actually, it's also really cool too, because you surge ahead and you're flying and it kind of breaks up the run for me. Like it <laughs> makes it go by faster. Also, you get really cool pictures because you surge ahead and then, you know, you like kind of stop and wait and shuffle back and take a yeah. picture as I'm running through. So it's, yeah. It's That's why if you've ever fun. seen our videos online, often in the background, I'm like, <laughs> just like heaving like a water buffalo in heat. Um, but I think the other thing that's important for me to remember is I'm the sort of person I get wildly excited excited yeah. when I run with training partners. Like I'm out there, I'm out there talking, dancing, like screaming woohoo. And what I find interesting is that my heart rate at the same pace is often much higher when I yeah. run with people. And so I need to make sure that I account for that effort in my training cycle and in kind of overall what I'm doing, but also to know too, that's not like, that's yeah. not a reflection of my fitness. It's just a reflection of like being excited to run with someone with other people. And I've seen this from athletes through, you know, like I went out running with my friend, I, we started talking, <laughs> we got really excited and the run felt harder than usual. And that, that can be normal. Like your heart rate can be elevated as you're running with other people and excited. Ultimate introvert thing is I'll often end group runs with a sore throat because I'm just not used to talking that much. It's this podcast and group run. The reason that lifting others up matters is because if not, there will just be this insipid, insidious process of people running each other into the ground without even saying it, without even knowing it. Um, it reminds me of the old thing about Harvard Law at the, at the um, uh, orientation where they say, look to your left, look to your right, one of you won't be here next year. And that's what group runs can turn into. Um, and with that in mind, remember, no such thing is too slow. And if you're out there on an easy run, slow down to the, the pace of the you know, the athlete that is the least fast is the one dictating it. Um, the, the group runs are not about going faster. And then on workouts, that that dynamic can start to change. But on easy runs, just keep it easy. Actually, what I love, so Trail Sisters is an organization yeah. and they have no drop group runs. And I think that's just such an amazing concept. The feeling I have been dropped before on group runs and it is a terrible feeling. And like, don't do that to other yeah. people. Like have this open communication, have this open framework. Like I think just like make others feel like believed and supported yeah. throughout this entire process. The goal is to be like Coach Taylor basically in everything in life, but especially in running and those similar types of pursuits that like other people's success is your success. And to avoid the kind of frenemy style things um, like mean girls, where you're secretly hoping that you have the better day um, because you're going to have shit days, just like they're going to have shit also, days. Also that, that emotion is exhausting. Oh my God. Like, yeah. I think I've heard from athletes before and they're like, this is just like, I mean, I feel like it's, a, it's that sort of frenemy emotion is something that can just like take over your life and yeah. take away from what you're doing yourself. Yeah. And it also applies not just in running, like broaden this out to like work collaboration or partners or anything who gets the credit who wins all 
terrible questions to ask. They ruin everything and like everywhere. Like you see this often in relationships. It's like, well, who won this argument or who was right? It's like, it does not matter. Actually, this makes me think of the Grammys. So the Grammys yeah. this year were fantastic. I think they did such a great job in like the COVID atmosphere. Yeah. It was just, they really highlighted the musical performance. But okay, so talk about musical performance. Cardi B and Meg Thee Stallion yeah. had these like side-by-side -side duo performances that just lifted both of them up. Like actually literally lifted. Yeah. They're lifting both of each other up. Well, yeah. Yeah, that was a perfect analogy because at the start, Meg Thee Stallion was on one place, one side of the stage, and Cardi B was on the other side of the stage. They both did their verses. And then at the end, they came up to this big bed that had a very evocative- The, 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 the pillow arrangement in that bed was interesting. Yeah, yeah. You should look at a photo because I think we probably weren't the only people to see that. It was like one of those highlights. It was like a naughty highlights where you spot the differences in the photos. Um, and so they come together on this bed. Whoa, did not mean to say it that way. Um, but perhaps based on what happens next, it was it's relevant. Um, and they started like intertwining in this cool dance with their legs. And it was the perfect moment of it's like, that is called lifting each other up. That is what group runs are about, is that Cardi B Meg the Stallion WAP energy where you know you get up there and you're both like both rocking it, both Grammy winners, both doing all this amazing work. And like that process is what group runs should be too. I just like how truly lifting each other up in the process. And in their case, like literally doing yeah. it, it was so cool. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, everyone. We really appreciate you. Do whatever you do to podcasts. Subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. Yeah. Oh, you got it. Yeah, Tell. yeah. And bring that Meg the Stallion and Cardi B energy into your lives. We love you all. Thanks so much. Bye.